This morning, I, I'm wanting to continue uh, talking in the school of sharing. And we've covered a variety of topics. Um, you understand the foundation for the series, the, the need to rebuild after all the devastation that COVID has brought to our lives and, and really to our fellowship in many ways. And we've talked about sharing from a, diff, a, a variety of different perspectives. We've talked about evaluating our eternal, our e- external performance based on what's really living and resident in our hearts, how important uh, that really is. Uh, And this morning, I want to talk about sharing um, based on what I think God's commands in Scripture for us are driving us toward, okay? And I'm going to start uh, by reading a passage from 2 Corinthians 9, and invite you into a conversation that Paul is having with the Corinthian church. This is 2 Corinthians 9, right from the beginning. It's a rather long passage, so hang on. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. The Corinthian church had told Paul that they're going to send an offering, okay, to support other poor Christians. That's what's being referenced. For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this. This is verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the need of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I confess, I do not understand why God makes all the commands that he makes. Sometimes I can figure out pieces of his strategy. Other times, its full expression is not obvious to me. I am convinced of this, however, God desires and conspires to make us into generous people. Now, I get to experience this generosity frequently since so many of you are generous with me and my family. And many times, the folks who are most generous are the ones who are least able to afford that generosity, which makes it all the more meaningful to me. Every year, 
We get gifts of jams and jellies and homemade breads, chocolate concoctions. Uh, Nancy and I get gift cards to Subway and Panera, Dunkin' Donuts and other places. And at some level, I'm tempted to think that this is just because you're such good people. But I also realize it's because God is doing something among us and his work among us makes us, turns us into more and more generous people. And I want to talk about simply generosity today. I'm convinced that turning us into generous people is part of God's agenda in the transformational grace he extends to us. What what does generosity look like? Back in 1985, when I was in the Amazon jungle on a mission trip, I experienced a church service where an offering was taken, and afterwards I was able to look at the offering plate. And in the offering plate there were two eggs, a few coins, three grub worms, and I thought, that's an interesting offering. I had to ask about the grub worms, because I'm thinking, who's putting like insects in the offering plate? And I was told that these particular grub worms grew in the heart of the palm tree. They were considered delicacies, and they're a special gift for the pastor to eat. I was not yet a senior pastor, and I played that card at that moment (laughs) so that I would not have to be the one to eat those grub worms. Uh, But I I thought about this link between giving what I have to give, because no one else in the service thought twice about the contents of that offering plate. It seemed to make sense that the offering that was given reflected the ability of those who were giving. If you didn't have any coins, you couldn't give coins. If you had an extra egg to share, that made a great gift for the offering. We know that giving in the not-so-distant past in the United States reflect that. It wasn't unusual for pastors to be paid in meat for the freezer or produce from the garden. I have an etching on the wall of my office that shows a couple coming up to the parsonage and handing a a brace of pheasants to the pastor as an offering. Um, If you roll the clock back a little further, you probably remember when the culture was agrarian, tithes and offerings were paid in the currency of that day, grain or whatever was in the hands of the giver. The Old Testament describes in different places several different means of both tithes and offerings that reflect the culture in which the Old Testament is written. Deuteronomy 12 reads this way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your, of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. 
this, this passage describes a, an observance where an animal was butchered and some portions were placed on the altar, others were cooked, and the family gathered together in the house of God to rejoice and to give praise to God. There are other descriptions in the Old Testament, descriptions of first fruits offering, where 10% of the harvest was brought in and presented to God at the temple. Uh, this is a little different than the description in Deuteronomy 14, where every third year a special tithe was given, and that was specifically for foreigners and the fatherless and widows and strangers. You know, as society has changed and customs have changed, some of the details of the tithing system have changed, but that which was central has stayed pretty much the same. Because God has blessed us, we offer back to God a portion of what we received, 10% of our increase to support the work of the kingdom of God is a tithe. And we also give special offerings, thanksgiving offerings, when we feel the need to say thank you to God for the goodness he expresses to us continually. And at times we make vows or promises to God, sort of like the faith promises we talk about frequently, and we honor those promises. And I think in all of these ways, God has established these practices, these disciplines, because he has an agenda for us. He wants to teach us to rely on him rather than to rely exclusively on ourselves. He wants to help us become bearers of the kingdom of God, to take responsibility for carrying the kingdom to our world. He wants to use the discipline of tithing and giving to teach us how to be generous people. And if we don't embrace these disciplines, if we don't embrace these practices, we miss the lessons that God is trying to teach us. We, we miss the lesson to actually rely on God. I can remember as a young boy talking to my father about tithing. And he would explain to me the reason we never drive the latest model car is because we can't really afford to because unlike our neighbors, we're giving 10% of our income to the church. And that's our priority. And we would rather be faithful to God and his word than drive the latest model car. Now, I'm not saying anything about driving a late model car. I'm just saying that you got to get the first things done first, right? The most important things have got to be done first, and then everything else sort of finds its place after that. The basis of all of our giving is joy. You heard it in the passage. Come together as your family, eat the meal in the house of the Lord, and rejoice in everything God has done for you. To be counted as children of this most gracious God should be an anchor of joy for us every day that we live. Listen to Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Do you hear how this this worship and offering thing are sort of woven together. 
This is an expression of our joy and our worship. And I think at times we've lost some of the joy in giving to God. We've forgotten how good it is when we bless the Lord rather than gripe to the Lord. And giving gifts is a way we express our joy at being his children. And it is a discipline that God uses to make us into generous people. I'm also thinking that in terms of giving, in the action of meeting the needs of others around us, that we have a great chance to get in touch with the joy that accompanies those kinds of actions. We read in 2 Corinthians 9 that, that those who sow sparingly reap sparingly. And, and having the opportunity to give to others to help in times of need really does bring great joy for us. And if it's joy you need, look around at others and see what needs you can meet. I mean, God has promised to provide for you, and he is providing for you. I can't say for certain that he's supplying everything you want or think you need. And I also can't say that he will meet all of your needs if you live in isolation. Because it may be that the plan the Father has for meeting some of your needs is to meet those needs through your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And if God's plan is to knit the fellowship together by the way we meet one another's needs, and you isolate yourself from God's plan... You know, it's sort of like that story you hear in times of flooding when a guy's on his roof, you know the story, and he's praying that God will rescue him, and a guy comes by in a boat, and he says, no, no I don't get in that boat. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And then a helicopter flies by and puts a ladder down. He says, no, I don't need that ladder. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And then he drowns, and he gets up to heaven, and he says to God, God, I was counting you counting on you to rescue me from this flood. He said, I sent a boat. I sent a helicopter. What else did you want? You know, it, it's like that. If, if God's plan is to meet our needs through our fellowship in the body of Christ, and we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, or we separate ourselves from the body of Christ, if we're not encountering and interacting with God's people, how are we going to have our needs known? Or how are we going to know what needs there are so that we can begin to meet one another's needs? And so our fellowship is critical to seeing the fulfillment of God's plan for us in our lives. The system doesn't work if you isolate and step out of fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You might say that it's easy for me to trust that God will meet my needs because I've never faced the kind of crises that you're facing or I've never faced the kind of unemployment you're facing or I've never had the hard times. Well, Nancy and I have not always been in situations that paid well. And I think back specifically to 1986 where we both quit our jobs and moved to seminary with no jobs and no prospects and, and trusted in the Lord to meet our needs because we honestly believed he was lead, leading us. And I can tell you by, by evidentiary testimony that God provides needs, that he meets needs as we need them. Uh, not always long before we need them. 
but he meets needs as we need them. You know, a few years ago, I heard Bob Cornell say something that I thought was very insightful. He said this, we shouldn't be asking people to tithe just when finances are tight at the church. We should always be asking folks to tithe so that they could know the joy of honoring God regardless of whether the church needs the money or not. That's really true. We don't tithe because the church is in financial difficulty, and the church isn't in financial difficulty. We tithe because God has commanded it and has attached joy to the fulfillment of the command. And if we're going to know the full pleasure of God in our lives, then we have to cooperate with his agenda to make us generous people. The gifts we bring are expressions of gratitude, of thanks. They are a statement of praise, of worship, and of joy. And I've been wondering about how do we get the joy, the mystery, the adoration back into the the process of giving? Not just for the sake of the joy involved, but also for the discipline of becoming generous people. I guess I'm really talking in two directions at once today. I'm talking about tithing and the need to trust God with a very disciplined regimen of giving. But I'm also talking about generosity beyond tithing that connects me to the people of God and to others who are in need around me so that I can know the joy that comes from being the instrument of God to meet needs around me. Both of these are important, and both have the ability to make us generous people who rely on God. As soon as I do that, though, I know there's a danger involved, and this is the danger. We live in a world where communication is instant, and we know about every tragedy and difficulty around the entire world in an instant. And and the work of Christ in us makes us more compassionate and sensitive people. And it is very easy when faced with the size of the need around the world to just become paralyzed, to say, what can I do? I mean, my resources are so small. And so I'm paralyzed to the point of just doing nothing because I think my resources can't make a difference. We have to be on our guard against that in two ways. One, we have to guard against the assumption that because my resources are small, I can't make a significant difference. Because all I'm really being asked to do is to make a difference in the places that the Spirit leads me to make a difference, okay? You don't have to donate to every telemarketer that calls you on the phone. You don't have to donate every time you see a commercial on television. You don't have to donate every time someone asks you to. But you do have to ask the Spirit to say, Lord, how how do I help? And, And I would encourage you to be especially sensitive to the needs that are right in front of you locally. 
to the people who are around you, the people with whom you have a relationship, that you give those types of needs priorities because the Spirit is opening your eyes to those folks right in front of you. And the second thing is, well, you know the story from the New Testament, right? Jesus is in the temple courts. A widow comes by. Two pennies puts them in the jar, and Jesus observes, would you look at that? Now that woman has given more than everybody else combined because she gave out of her poverty and everyone else has given out of their excess. Jesus doesn't despise small gifts. If you can do almost nothing, the little you can do still is a link to the joy of God and to the approval of God and still can be used by God in miraculous ways. You remember from the passage that Paul wrote, one of the outcomes of the offering that the Corinthian church was gathering is it created encouragement for other people and motivated them to also participate in the offering. And so the offering size grew, the expression of thanks grew, the joy grew. So it really didn't matter so much what the Corinthian church gave. The very fact that they promised to give set this avalanche of giving forward and a great offering was raised to liberate the poverty of parts of the Christian church. And it may be that just your small example of giving will ignite a fire of giving that grows. I mean, you've heard the stories. You've watched the the internet commentary of of a seventh grade boy who is moved to compassion to provide a coat or two to a homeless person. And before you know it, a year later, he and his parents have a warehouse with 15,000 coats and they're making a difference in downtown Chicago. And you've read those stories, right? And, And every one of these stories starts with two widow's mites. Someone somewhere notices, makes a difference, and God uses the gifts that are given to his glory. And so I encourage you, don't be paralyzed by the size of the need that is everywhere. Pray, limit your scope, but don't ignore the need that is right in front of you in your neighborhood on your street. Size of the gift doesn't matter. It's the intent of the heart that makes all the difference. God loves a joyful giver. God has blessed us in incredible ways. He has been gracious and patient with us. And if we have any ability at all to bring anything to him, It's because he gave it to us to begin with. And that should bring great joy into our lives that he's provided the grace we need to continue to honor and bless his name. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. May the joy of the Father be yours. May you know the peace of resting in his provision. And may your faces shine with the reflected glory of God this day and always. 
Amen. Go in peace.